Good morning. My name is Jeff Moger, and uh, I'm an elder on session here at the barn. Matt is getting a, a well-deserved rest this week, and when he does that, some of us get a chance to preach, and today is my turn. This summer, as I suspect most of you know, we're looking at a, the book of Acts in a series called Acts of the Apostle. Sometimes that word's hard to say, Acts. Acts of the Apostle. It's the story of the early church as a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both the Gospel and Acts. It's a history book, and that's good. Acts has 28 chapters. We'll not be covering them all this summer. We're all the way up to chapter 5 for today. Matt has given us an image of the church as an asylum, and he has that painting. I, I guess we don't have it today. Uh, but the church as an asylum, and he defined it using Merriam-Webster as being a sanctuary, a shelter, and a refuge. These are nice, comfortable, comforting words for us, words we're used to. It's also, though, defined as a home for the destitute, the afflicted, or the insane, which is not as comforting for those of us. My family has the great fortune of owning a beach house on the Connecticut shore, and I grew up spending many summer days there. It's a great place. But down the beach from our house is the newest Connecticut State Park. You've probably heard of it. It's called Seaside Regional Center. It has a history as an asylum for the physically and the mentally needy in our state. As a kid in the 60s and 70s, my brothers and I would go down the beach to Seaside to, to go out on the long jetty, maybe for a swim or fishing or something like that. It sticks out into Long Island Sound. It was fun. But in order to get to the jetty, you had to go past the residence. And you had to look up and see the residence there. And in my ignorance, I was always terrified by the place because it was an asylum for people who had struggles and challenges that I wasn't very comfortable with. I didn't really understand. That experience has colored my use of the word asylum. It was a place to get care and healing, but I saw it as a, a place to be feared. I hope the church today is not seen as a place to be afraid of, but as a place for care and healing. The story in Acts 5 that we're going to read today has an element of fear that stands in contrast to the overall message of the scripture, the, the message of God's saving grace for his people, a story of his love that rescues us from a life without him to the with God life. So I'd like you to take out your Bible or your device and open it to Acts chapter 5, and I'll read along. Chapter 5 is a long chapter. We've got 42 verses to get through today. I'll be reading from the ESV. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? They will care, uh, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temples and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could, would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men you, are, you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. 
you may even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to speak in the name of Jesus. Uh, not, excuse me, not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Give us your wisdom and your spirit to understand it and apply it to our lives. We want to hear from you, Father God. Amen. It seems to me that chapter 5 breaks logically into three different sections, and I will use those three different sections to kind of... uh, get us to understand a little bit about, about this chapter. The first section, is verses 1 through 11, is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you've read it before. In my opinion, this is the scary stuff of the asylum. I, uh, it's a difficult and an awkward story, and sometimes I wonder why it's in the Bible. But it's there. Today, I think I'd like to rewrite the ending of this story, perhaps something like, well, the couple, after being confronted with their deception, confessed and repented and made it all right again. I'm a sucker for a happy ending. But that's not what happened. God's judgment was immediate and capital. Thankfully, though, this judgment is not the norm in Scripture. Scripture is much more the opposite of that judgment. So what do we take from it? The early church of Acts 5 was imperfect, and the church today remains imperfect. Imperfect people do not make perfect congregations. Luke shows us this in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 5 begins with the word but, so we know that it's related to something that came earlier. The story is a direct contrast to the ending verses of Acts chapter 4, and this is important to keep in mind. Luke gives us the story of a good way to act and then immediately contrasts it with a story showing us how not to act. At the end of chapter 4, as we saw last week, Barnabas is commended for selling a field and donating it to support the work of the apostles. Good job, Barnabas. This is giving us an example of how the early church was relating to each other. They were unified in purpose and in meeting the physical needs of each other. This was not a requirement of following Jesus. They all didn't do this. That's why Barnabas was singled out. But it is simply an example of the actions of one man. Barnabas sold and gave all to the group. He was all in. Ananias and Sapphira were not all in. They were deceiving those who they were in fellowship with. Worst yet, as we read in verse 4, they were lying to God. Judgment came swiftly. Their actions were a threat to the purity and the unity of the church. I think it still would be today. Are we concerned about the purity and the unity of the church? This story tells us that God is. God is concerned about it. Over the past year or so, our women's ministry here at the barn has spent time studying 2 Corinthians. They used a series put out by an author named Kelly Minter. So this was the series they used. It's called All Things New. 
In the book, Kelly wrote this. I grew up in a Christian culture where holiness and Christian behavior were emphasized. Grace was a vital part of the conversation when it came to what it took to get to heaven, but it wasn't talked about as much when life got messy or just plain sinful. Usually those situations just meant consequences. In an effort to right the wrongs of the grace for heaven only mentality, I've seen the church swing perhaps too far in the other direction, where it's all grace at the expense of holiness or obedience. We've become so used to depravity that we're not all that bothered we're not all that bothered by it anymore. Sin just isn't what it used to be. We've become so used to depravity that we're not all that bothered by it anymore. Sin just isn't what it used to be. I'm not sure I agree 100% with that statement. But sin just isn't what it used to be causes me to think. The story of Ananias and Sapphira certainly shows that God takes sin in his church very seriously. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira is that by lying, they had broken the purity and the unity of the early church. They had no integrity. They were being generous, but they wanted to be seen as more generous than they actually were. They were trying to present a different reality, which is at the heart of lying. We live in a world of lying and half-truths and spin doctors and yeah, it goes on. We long for pure truth as a society, and the church should value pure truth even more. The Old Testament has many examples of God protecting the purity of the nation of Israel. You can see Joshua 7 or 2 Kings chapter 5, for examples. God is consistent in his opposition to sin from the Old Testament to the New Testament and to today. As stated earlier, Ananias and Sapphira were not all in. They were hurting the purity and the unity of the church. I'm a teacher and I get the summers off and I like to read different books. And I read a book this summer, a popular book, called The Boys in the Boat. Maybe some of you have read it. It's an excellent book. It's about the American eight-oar crew boat that won the gold medal in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. The story is mostly about one of the boys or one of the young men named Joe and contains a conversation in which Joe learns about the ultimate strength of a crew boat. His coach suggested that, quote, think of a well-rowed race as a symphony and himself as just one player in the orchestra. If one fellow in an orchestra was playing out of tune or playing at a different tempo, the whole piece would naturally be ruined. That's the way it was with rowing. What mattered more than how hard a man rowed was how well everything he did in the boat harmonized with what the other fellows were doing. And a man couldn't harmonize with his crewmates unless he opened his hearts to them. He had to care about his crew. It wasn't just the rowing, but his crewmates that he had to give himself up to, even if it meant getting his feeling hurts, getting his feelings hurt. The mentor finished with this quote, If you don't like some fellow in the boat, Joe, you have to learn to like him. It has to matter to you whether he wins the race, not just whether you do. You have to like some, you don't, 
You don't, if you don't like some fellow in the boat, Joe, you have to learn to like him. It has to matter to you whether he wins the race, not just whether you do. That last line struck me as a, as a coach, as a former athlete, uh, and as a follower of Jesus. A church in unity is one where its members care not only about their own success in following Jesus, but also care about the success of their fellow members in following Jesus. As a church, we root for each other to be successful. We care if our neighbor wins the race, not just that we do. Am I that type of follower of Jesus? Are we that type of church? To end this section, I want you to take notice of two things. One, it is most likely that Ananias died of a heart attack due to the shock of being revealed. Peter did not kill him or condemn him to death. And also in verse 11, Luke uses the word church for the first time in his writing. In the whole Gospel of Luke, apparently, he didn't use it. and He uses it here in, in Acts chapter 5 for the first time. And the word is a reference to the followers of Jesus, not to a building, not to an outside sanctuary, not to property, even on a beautiful day like today. It is the followers of Jesus who are the church. Let's remember that. The second section of the chapters of the chapter, verses 12 to 16, show the remarkable result of the purified and unified church. That result is power. We're now back into scripture that is a little more comfortable for us. The unified and purified church has power for, quote, what we're told, signs and wonders. Miracles are done in the name of Jesus by his church. The result of this power, as we saw before, is growth. Verse 14 reads, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. This is great. But to get to verse 14, we have to read verse 13, which states, None of the rest dared to join them. These two statements on the surface seem to be contradictory. In light of the harsh story of Ananias and Sapphira, followed by the obvious power of these followers of Jesus, maybe it's not too surprising that people were watching, the people who were watching reacted with fear. They saw the signs and the wonders and were impressed, but they were not yet ready to join, perhaps out of fear that they may end up like Ananias and Sapphira. It's not an illogical position to hold. But then we are told that multitudes of men and women did come and follow Jesus. Many more saw the power and truth of the gospel and were immediately drawn to it. The church grew numerically, and according to verse 16, it also grew regionally, as people from the, quote, towns around Jerusalem were coming to follow. The gospel was spreading, and the Great Commission was in action. Do we see the same reactions today? Many people today encounter Jesus for the first time. They are drawn to him, and they quickly respond to the offer. Others encounter Jesus and are more cautious about what they have observed, not sure what it all means. Perhaps some of you out there today are in this second group and are cautiously encountering Jesus and those who claim to be his followers, a.k.a. the church. I think you're in a good place. Consider him carefully and deeply. 
Don't get turned off by the failures of those of us who call him Lord. Remember, the church is an imperfect group of people who need grace from Jesus and from others. Perhaps a modern parallel to the situation that they they found themselves in in Acts 5 might be a, a view of acupuncture. I'm not a doctor, and I never played one on TV. But growing up, it seemed to me that most Americans kind of made fun of acupuncture. Sticking needles in you helps you get, helps you get better. I don't think so. But over time and through observation and study, acupuncture has become much more respected by the West. Of course, the Chinese always respected it. Medical people have studied it and tried to understand it. Insurance companies now cover it. It's taken a while, but today we view acupuncture very differently than we did years ago. Studying it has brought faith in it. Isn't the good news of Jesus more important than our view of acupuncture? Perhaps those who dared not join were actually studying the disciples to see if it was a movement that had truth and life. Perhaps that is what some of you are doing today. Keep considering. Keep studying. It's a good place to be in. The long last section of the chapter, from 17 all the way to 42, covers the result of this display of power and popularity. And that, of course, is persecution. We've seen it before. Verse 17, once again, begins with a but. Because the people were listening to the teachings and the actions of the early church. They were joining, they were supporting, they were following. The religious, the traditional religious leaders of the day were jealous and worried. They needed to do something. Their response was to oppose them, to persecute them. The story picks up pace. Arrest, miraculous release, empty prison cells, preaching, rearrest, trials, accusations, speeches, anger, a calming voice, beatings, and more preaching. It's a lot of action. It sounds like a Tom Cruise film. The section begins with trouble, being arrested again, but ends in joy, being released. The church has come under persecution by the authorities that it is challenging, not for the first time and not for the last. Once again, I'd like you to notice a few items. In verse 20, the angel, upon freeing them from prison, tells the disciples to tell the people, quote, all the words of this life. All the words of this life. The followers of Jesus at this time were kind of in the process of figuring it all out. It's only Acts 5. They're trying to figure it out for themselves, and that's a great help to us today. What does it all mean? In verses 29 to 32, Peter tells us a simple message. All the words of this life are that the crucified Jesus is now alive and in fact is the Savior. And Peter and the others are eyewitnesses to these facts. Peter reminds them that they, the authorities, had him killed. As you, as you can imagine, that didn't go over too well. And now the leaders want to kill the disciples. Calmer heads will prevail as the leading Pharisee named Gamaliel counsels that the jury is still out on this teaching. He says, don't resist it. If it's not of God, it will die out. But if it is of God, you will not stop it. 
And in fact, you might find yourself resisting God. Not a good place to be in. The people listen. Well, the leaders listen. Well, kind of. They don't kill them, but they do beat them quite badly and charge them to stop teaching, and then they release them. Story over? Not quite. Because as the chapter ends, they are back in the temple and in their houses. Notice that both in the temple and in their houses, teaching and preaching about Jesus with joy. Safe for the moment, but more persecution is coming. Peter and the others are living out what they've been preaching. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men, as we must today. So, what, is all, what do we take away from chapter 5? What does it all mean? The church, the community of followers of Jesus, is an asylum for those who trust Jesus with their heart and their decisions. If you're a follower of Jesus, you enjoy that fellowship. You are part of the community of faith that it represents. You recognize it as an imperfect asylum for imperfect people. If you're considering the claims of Jesus, then you might look with skepticism on the church, noting its strengths and its faults. This is a valid position to hold. The Christian walk was meant to be lived in fellowship with others. Not always easy to do. If you struggle with liking another follower, then I encourage you to think like our 16th president. Abraham Lincoln once said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. The church was created to help in our walk with Jesus. Unfortunately, from day one, it has not always done it well and still doesn't at times today. It's hard to live a godly life with other people. I get in the way of their faith and they might get in the way of mine. We will not get it fully right here on earth. It will not be fully right until God makes all things new and ushers in his kingdom. But we try to get it as right as we can. We can do better in making our asylum a true sanctuary, a shelter, a refuge, and our spiritual home. Like the boys in the boat, let us row together in unity to win the race for ourselves but also to help our neighbors win as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the way it enlightens our minds. Let us be a pure and unified people who rely on your grace each and every day. Amen.